This podcast is brought to you by our patrons. To help support the show, visit patreon.com slash haveadrinkshow. This is your beer, liquor, and other beverage news for the week of July 21st, 2018. Boston Beer's chief marketing officer puts family first. According to Nielsen, craft beer drinkers, male, 21 to 34, and could wear unironic handlebar mustaches. Pond scum, the answer for organic French wines. All this and more this week on Have a Drink News. Welcome to Have a Drink News, the show where we cover the week's popular news about what you drink. I'm Brittany Lee Walker. I'm Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. Our good friend Justin is out this week, unfortunately for us. I think fortunately for him. Yeah, because he's in Asheville, (laughs) living it up, living it up in Beer City, USA. But the rest of us still have news to talk about. So let's go ahead and dive right on in here. Our top story for the week, Boston Beer's CMO departing on July 31st. Boston Beer Company Chief Marketing Officer John Potter will depart the the country's second largest craft brewery at the end of the month. The company uh, disclosed an SEC filing issued yesterday. Potter, Potter, who joined uh, the beer cider and flavored malt beverages producer in August of 2016, not that long ago, but he's made a big impact in his time there. He's credited with engineering the company's Fill Your Glass advertising campaign that debuted during last year's Major League Baseball World Series. He will officially step down from the CMO post on July 31st, the company said, noting that details of his departure uh, have not been finalized. Details are with nice quotes. Uh, in a statement issued to uh, this story, who this story came from, Brewbound, newly appointed Boston Beer CEO Dave Berwick thanked Potter for his creative thinking and insights and his many significant contributions to the marketing team and the organization. After two years of weekly commuting from Western Connecticut, John has decided to leave Boston Beer effective July 31st to spend more time with his family. Uh, we plan to initiate the search for a new CMO immediately. According to the SEC filings, the 54-year-old Potter was paid a base salary of about, oh, you know, a mere. Four hundred and seventy-nine thousand dollars in twenty seventeen. He also received a quarter of a million dollar hiring bonus on March tenth, twenty seventeen, that he would have been required to repay on a prorated basis if he departed the company during the following twelve month period. Potter was also awarded two hundred grand cash incentive bonus in twenty seventeen. So that means in twenty seventeen he brought home. Oh, Almost a million dollars. It may have been just shy. Just shy. Uh, Potter leaves Boston Beer Company at a time when uh, portfolio-wide off-premise retail volume sales are up more than 16%, despite continued declines uh, for flagship beer offering Samuel Adams Boston Lager, according to market research firm IRI Worldwide. Uh, the company's Samuel Adams seasonal offerings, as well as its Twisted Tea, Truly Spiked, and Sparkling and Angry Orchard Rosé brands are driving much of this current growth, according to the data from IRI. <laughs> so that is, Boston Beer had been seeing a huge downturn recently, and it seems like over his watch, things have started to turn around. It's again what we, we see 
that those new styles of beverages drive more growth nowadays than the old faithfuls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, prior to joining Boston Beer, Potter worked as the managing uh, director for Hennessy, <laughs> of all places, uh, Channing California's division for Hennessy. He had previously served as that company's CMO and executive vice president between 2012 and 2015. Uh, Potter, who represented Great Britain as a field hockey player in three Olympic games, winning a gold medal. He's an Olympic gold medal winner from 88 and a bronze medal in 84. Also spent two years (laughs) with uh, McKinney Rogers, a global business execution consultancy. That's... that's the most businessy sounding name I've ever heard. Mm. And 13 years with Diageo, uh, where he held various roles, including CMO, hmm, interesting enough, of the company's North America unit. So it seems like he really has helped, and he may have also served his purpose. Like he's, he did what they hired him to do at Boston Beer. And that's like they, he's helped find a way to market these new beverages, and it's helped start to turn their declining sales around. Absolutely, yeah. The new the new beverage market that's the that's the place that it's at. Um, sparkling beverages. We talked a little bit about those in last week's main show. Um, we did a little bit more on on the side of um, what was it the 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 rosé stuff in the new. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a hot thing. Yep. And that I noticed this week when I was out looking at <laughs> some singles and things. That is uh, just to bring that story back up. That is spreading. Like wildfire, uh, a lot of places that offer craft beer singles, and they'll have a, a separate can section for singles and cans, or create your owns. And those beverages have started leaking into it. So at local grocery chains like uh, Kroger or something like that, you're starting to see those kinds of beverages seep over into that. Yeah. Well, and then Braxton's cider just got put into cans. They have a regular version and a rosé. Yeah, we've got a uh, locally. It's that's happening. So everyone's getting into. Those kind of beverages. It's like a requirement. All right. Well, next up, um, we have some news from Nielsen, which you don't typically hear news from uh, yeah, in I the did, beer land. <laughs> I didn't. You only think of them coming to install the, the little tracker in your TV. <laughs> yeah. And um, then you're always in the back of your mind thinking, oh, I've got to try and skew their numbers by watching as much porn as possible. Mm-hmm. So uh, they've got some craft beer insights. Um, so according to Nielsen, a weekly craft drinker is predominantly male. Okay. It, Ages 21 to 34. Check. And makes between 75K and 99K annually. Where are they getting that number? Yeah, no check on that one. <laughs> yeah. the, the, there's no check. Like, we uh, might uh, we might spend like that's what we make yeah. on craft beer, but there's no way most of your craft beer drinkers are making that. Yeah. Not, I mean, what? 20? Well, okay. So here's the reason I think that those new numbers are specifically skewed that direction. In our neck of the woods, $75,000 is a lot of money. <laughs> if you're yeah. in San Francisco or Portland, like $75,000 barely pays for a one-bedroom walk-up. Okay, yeah. In, in the Midwest, that is, that is a very nice income. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Uh, although that's the profile of a frequent craft drinker, opportunities exist to reach a more diverse group of consumers according to the research firm, which today shared the results of its fourth annual Craft Beer Insights Panel survey conducted by Harris Poll and commissioned by the Brewers Association. So uh, Nielsen's beverage alcohol team, which apparently exists, uh, joined, today, uh, joined today's Power Hour webinar. Woo! Power Hour! <laughs> hosted yeah. by the Brewers Association to unveil their latest findings. According to uh, 
Brager, one of the um, team, senior vice president of Nielsen's beverage alcohol practice area, the 20-minute online survey asked about 1,000 legal drinking age consumers about their consumption habits. This survey ended up classifying craft consumers into two categories, weekly craft consumers, who uh, that's 45% of the respondents, and all craft consumers, those who consume several times a year, which were 55% of the respondents. Takeaways from the presentation. More adults are drinking craft. That seems pretty straightforward. Uh, Check. The survey found that 47% of weekly craft drinkers said they are drinking more craft beer, while 18% said that they were drinking less, and 32% of all craft drinkers said their consumption had increased. The craft beer segment has an opportunity to reach more female consumers. Sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to get into the chat so I could talk uh, talk over in the chat and it decides to play it over there. Nice. For the first time ever. It never does that. <laughs> uh, so although the gender gap still exists, uh, Breaker said it's shrinking and a big opportunity to close the gap remains. That's a lot of the talking points we're hearing coming from the Brewers Association recently is good. that they're trying to close these minority gaps that we're seeing because it has traditionally been a boys club, which... Uh, a white boys club. <laughs> yeah, the... <laughs> The White People Rich Boys Club, and that has needed to change for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's not a problem of the like for the people who are consuming craft, but it is something that needs to be changed. Everyone might be on the outside looking in going, well, why is this an issue? It's just the clientele. And no, the other people feel like when they look from the outside in on this, it's kind of... It's almost exclusion- exclusivary. Exclusionary. Exclusionary. There we go. <laughs> Words. Uh, so in 2018, 49% of men, uh, up from 40, uh, 46% in 2015 and 31% of women uh, up 25% in 2015 said they drink craft beer. Um, so that's a, those are good numbers. I feel like, although only 29% of women identified themselves as weekly craft drinkers, 70% identified as craft beer consumers. Mm. Compare that to the 82% of male respondents who identified as craft consumers. <laughs> so still a lower number than we would like. So who's buying all the ABM Bev products? <laughs> Bros. Uh, one opportunity to reach female consumers is through beers with crisp, fruity, or juicy slash hazy flavor profiles. For the, uh, for the female perspective, we go live to correspondent on the scene, Brittany Walker. Brittany, <laughs> what are you reporting? That makes me angry. <laughs> I mean, yes, I like those beers, but I don't think I. I'm weird though, because I like you know dark chocolatey stouts and things like that. I think that's more the way they should go, honestly, like the dessert route, you know, something rich. Uh, uh, this just in uh, headline headline: uh, pregnant feminist angry at other women for bad taste. That's clickbait. That <laughs> is actually. Uh, so. Um, they added that uh, female consumers are less interested in typical IPA profiles, but their interest is growing in New England-style IPAs, which, yeah, that kind of goes with the juicy, fruity business. Um, they called the style a really great opportunity to bridge that IPA gap. Um, they also have a nice uh, kind of infographic on here, which is basically the numbers we've already talked about um, as far as purchasing and, and correlation. Uh, it says brewery and tasting room visits lead to increased purchasing of a brand post-visit, which that makes sense to me. That seems logical. Uh, according to the survey, 15% of all craft drinkers said that they were purchasing a lot more of a brewery's beer after a visit, while 34% said they were buying a little more. 
<laughs> Let's hope they don't buy less. Oh, I went there. It was horrible. Yeah, like, I'm not buying any more. Turned it off entirely. Like I say, that that does tend to happen occasionally. Yeah. Um, those numbers increased for weekly craft drinkers, with twenty four percent saying they were purchasing a lot more of a brand's beer after visiting, and thirty five percent saying they purchased a little more. Thirty one percent of males ages thirty five to forty four, so slightly out of the demographic they were talking about earlier, uh, who drink craft beer weekly said they were buying more of a brand's products after visiting a tasting room, while 36% said they purchased a little more. And 20% of female consumers said they bought a lot more of a brewery's beer after a visit, while 42% said they bought, they bought a little more. Um, so you'd think the numbers would be higher, I guess, on both uh, gender demographics as far as visiting and buying a lot more of it. So that's a little strange, I guess. Um, we have another infographic on here as well for... Uh, tasting room visits um, often add occasions. So, for especially it says for non-core drinkers. So I guess that's the big takeaway there. Yeah, and if you guys want to see these infographics, uh, the article that we found was uh, it's over on Brewbound. Just go to Brewbound.com and you can find this and pull up all those yeah. nice little infographics. Um, so a lot of these are it goes back and forth on the percentages and things like that. Um, I the the other takeaway on the list is. A growing number of people are seeking so-called third space drinking occasions, including breweries and tap rooms. So 67% of 21 to 39-year-olds said that they were going to a brewery tasting rooms more than the previous year, while 65% said they were visiting more breweries. Uh, additionally, an increasing number of all U.S. consumers said they had visited more brewery tasting rooms, about 61%, and breweries than the prior year. So... This goes back to why we're seeing a die-off of big breweries. You've got one location. It's in, a neighborhood brewery. Yeah, and yeah. You, you start going to your local. And instead of drinking at home, we're going back to that way it was pre-prohibition when every neighborhood had sort of the watering hole. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that's ex that exact lifestyle we're seeing be resurrected with the entire family comes down, and that's what they yeah. do on their one or two days off of work. They go down to the brewery. We saw and this this week, actually. Yeah, yeah, you turn up with your whole family, kids, everyone, and you come down there and you eat and because most people, have most some drinks. Because most have food trucks or their own kitchen or whatever. Board games. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, <laughs> exactly. Flat out, you can spend your whole. You can have a family day I at mean, these we're breweries. A baby shower at a brewery. <laughs> yeah, so. our baby shower is going to be at a brewery, and the brewery fully encourages it. Yeah, it's not like, oh no, don't bring your kids. Even though I've outspokenly been against kids and breweries in the past. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to fix yeah. that. <laughs> yep. Uh, if you want to go to a brewery now, you're gonna have to uh, <sighs> to put up with your own. All right. The last two takeaways from this: uh, the brand is growing in importance in purchasing de decisions. Uh, like the brand, you know. Um, so it says 40% uh, of weekly craft drinkers said they look for the brand first compared to 24% saying that in 2015. So that's definitely gone up. 60% uh, of weekly drinkers, so I guess the not as common ones, said that they look at style compared to 76% in 2015. Ooh. So the brand is definitely becoming a little bit more important. That's... Hmm. Uh, I hate to say we're guilty of pushing this, bit, but yeah. we are <laughs> extremely guilty of pushing this because there are, like, we are kind of down to being some kind of brand loyalists. It's like, Sometimes, I see, yeah. well, there's some things where it's like, I've hardly ever had a bad drink from a certain brewery, so I tend to talk them up a bit more. And that's mm -hmm. kind of around, like, with all of us, even when Justin's on here, 
will be like, hey, there's rarely a bad thing I've ever had from New Belgium. So we will really push a lot of New Belgium beers. It's great. It's like New Holland, same way. Founders, mm-hmm. extremely the same way. So we'll really talk these beers up from them. And mm-hmm. I guess it kind of makes us a little guilty of it because there are you have some nationally brand distributed brands that we aren't talking as much about, like Harpoon and places like that. I even have, though I have had a bad Founders beer. Okay, we've all had one. We Ma- had it on the Mango's, show. Mango Magnific- Magnifico or whatever. I've heard that terrible was. things about that. I was going to say D- DKML. Oh, yeah, that one the too. Lizard. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. The Lizard of Cause. Okay, so. Right, we've had that, some. But for some reason, we the, the all the good kind of outweighs, you know, we, that we, stands out more. We keep forgiving them for yeah. these slides. <laughs> like, it's okay. You're it's okay. <laughs> KBS will be back out next year and all is forgiven. <laughs> Uh, This last interesting point for this particular takeaway is 59% of craft beer drinkers believe locally made is either very or somewhat important. Yes. So that's kind of goes to that same point we were just talking about. Um, The last takeaway is canned beer is on pace to outsell bottled beer within three years. So that's kind of a big thing. Mm-hmm. My surprise is that's not already the case. Yeah. The switch true. to canning is aggressive. We had the the period of can uh, shortage a few years ago. Mm. And yeah. That may have put us back a little bit. Because whenever you buy a canning line or a bottling line, you pick one or the other, and you've invested a quarter of a million plus in that one investment. You don't just switch over so, overnight. So what helps with this on um, the local scale and the small craft seen is um the mobile canning lines yep. so yeah. that's in uh where two of us are based usually is the greater cincinnati area there is i think one company right now that has a domination of uh, with because they someone just bought a mobile canning line and all of these craft breweries call them up set dates they bring the canning line in and they spend one day canning a crap ton of beer <laughs> yeah and then for the next like month, they've already got all the beers canned that they're going to sell out of the tap room, yep. and they're good to rock it out. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Those are really interesting uh, insights that they gathered. I think they're all pretty on point. And it gets to sh- it gets to show you sort of what your your dollars that go to the American Homebrewers Association or the dollars that go to um, the Brewers Association if you're a brewer, what they really go to help sponsor is this sort of... Yeah, of they're trying to figure out what's going on. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. you got to find the, where the person with the canning line is to get it to the people who need stuff canned. Yeah, and, and to even know that you need to look at getting a canning line now instead of a bottling line because mm. that's where it's going. All right, so moving on to an article from Decanter uh, Magazine slash online magazine. Uh, um, <laughs> Bordeaux Chateau tests algae to fight mildew. So tests at 10 vineyards in Bordeaux and Cognac aim to discover whether wine producers could use algae from the Atlantic Ocean to prevent fungal infections harming grapes. Early results from the tests at four vineyards in Bordeaux and six that are in the Cognac region show that algae could be effective against mildew and botrytis. The research might be particularly useful for biodynamic and organic producers seeking alternatives to copper treatments. Both fungal infections can pose a significant problem for the area, mainly due to the warm, damp conditions that favor their development. While the traditional copper solution uh, is effective against fungal outbreaks, some producers particularly believe that those who have embraced organics um, have concerns about its toxicity and have been keen to find another solution. Enter algae, of course. For the last three years, engineers and oenologists, 
Yeah, yeah, the, you got me. Uh, Oenologist, yes. I'm guessing? Uh, Laurent de, Car- de Cresto has been working with Lionel Navarro, a researcher with France's National Center for Scientific Research, or the CNRS, to test a treatment using powdered Atlantic algae. Results to date show 100% success rate, 100% success rate Woo. against mildew, and a 50% success rate against botrytis, according to the duo. Based in the Bordeaux suburb of Passac de Crasto, uh, said the next, oh, the suburb of Passac de Castro said the next steps will be to scale up production, secure regulatory approvals, and have a commercial product available by 2022. Uh, Mergo's Chateau Duzac has been one of those testing the algae. We were, um, we were looking at, at what this was kind of doing prior to the show and kind of talking and discussing this about why would organic people be, be afraid of copper. And it goes back to the fact that copper is just a kill everything type of, yeah, it'll destroy. There are a lot of good bacteria that you want in there. Yeah. And this is going to kill off your good bacteria and you're going to get some copper leaching. That's not good either. Yeah, so, um, and I'm sure copper can build up in the soil over many years. It's not one of those things that breaks down over time. Um, And you get towards a point with a lot of the non-organic farming methods where salts um, will actually build up. and You effectively salt the land, and it's no longer going to produce the yields you're expecting. Exactly. So looking ahead, some of these uh, vineyards aim to be copper-free within the next five years, with the most immediate challenge to be to refine dosages and find out exactly where that sweet spot is. They had a very wet spring this year, so they had to adapt the percentages, and they're still testing and learning. That's still awesome, though. Like, Mm -hmm. good job. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, uh, let's go ahead and shift back to uh, some brand recognition, which we may have just uh, talked about. New Belgium has signed a deal to become the official craft brewer of Red Rocks, and they are now brewing the Stage Rock, I believe is the name of the beer. Uh, It may only be available at Red Rocks, I'm not certain. It might be available in all of Denver, not sure. Uh, Colorado's New Belgium Brewing has inked another local partnership, this time with Denver Arts and Venues, the city agency responsible for operating the iconic Red Rocks Amphitheater. As part of a three-year deal, the Fort Collins headquartered New Belgium, and please um, go to the Fort Collins Brewery. It is breathtaking. Just not around GABF, because you're not going to oh, get Yeah, forget close. that. Yeah. You, won't get, you won't get a tour. It is a fantastic tour. Uh, will be welcome the official craft brewer of Red Rocks Amphitheater and have an increased presence at the Colorado Convention Center, the Denver uh, Performing Arts Complex, and the Belco Theater. Specific financial terms of the partnership were not disclosed, but New Belgium spokesman uh, Jesse Clays uh, confirmed to Brewbound, again, where this story is from, it is valued at less than a million dollars annually. So that's still a good chunk of change, but they're not... You know, really yeah. <laughs> raking it in off the partnership. Uh, New Belgium has also agreed to create Stage Rock Colorado Ale, a 4.7% ABV Kolsch style beer that will be sold at Red Rocks and other city of Denver venues. So, okay, you'll be able to get Red Rocks and all through Denver. I'm guessing probably at other uh, venues operated by this company. Uh, a portion of sales proceeds will be donated to Preserve the Rocks, a fund dedicated to education, restoration, and preservation in and around Red Rocks Amphitheater. 
uh, a press release noted, this is a world-class brewery taking the time to make a beer specifically for enjoyment by music fans visiting our world-class performance venue. Uh, uh, that's said from Brian Kitts, Director of Marketing and Business Development for Denver Arts and Venues. Uh, Clay's added that New Belgium is also considering additional on- and off-premise retail placements for Stage Rock Colorado Ale, which will be packaged in 19.2-ounce 19, 19. cans. The fastest-growing cans in canning. Mm. The the tall boy format mm-hmm. is coming in strong, and it's here to stay. And i got to say, those because uh, you used to only be able to see some of these weird, like, huge cans uh, in special releases, so... Um, Barrel Age 1050 from Oscar Blues is one of those. They call it the stovepipe can. Yep. And you're seeing a whole bunch of those now. Uh, Sierra Nevada is now pumping out cans like that. Uh, Founders is putting all-day IPA into cans like that. Dogfish Head is putting cans out like that. So these are going to be huge on the market. Uh, Cans and in kegs, but those who would be geospecific to the Denver area. So, again, got to be in Denver to get it. Uh, this sponsorship gives New Belgium greater visibility at Red Rocks via signage throughout the venue and increased availability uh, of different beers. So you'll probably be able to get Hemperer there. Mm-hmm. That, that'll that account for some of that dank odor hanging around Red Rocks. Yeah. <laughs> it deepens both our portfolio presence as well as the awareness that people have of our brands, Clay said. I think that's probably really what they were looking for there. Just so when you get those iconic, because they do a lot of live shows from there that are uh, broadcast on the internet and things like that. So you're going to have probably have big New Belgium signs hanging on each side of the stage and things like that. So uh, the company is also planning to open a 10-barrel brewery and restaurant at the Source Hotel located in Denver's River North Art District. Rhino. Rhino? Rhino. Rhino. Uh, so that's... Fun and interesting. <laughs> That'll be awesome. That's, uh, I mean, good job on them because, I mean, New Belgium, even though they're like an hour outside of Denver, is if you're a, a craft fan, it's really the reason to go to Denver. <laughs> well, there's plenty of reasons as a craft fan to go I mean, to Denver. Other, well, there's other stuff there, but like New Belgium reaching out like this into Denver proper makes a lot of sense. Also, that Kolsch style specifically makes a ton of sense for that Red Rocks area. Oh, yeah. It's a good, safe style, and it's going to be great on hot days, and yeah. it's going to be great on like a lot milder days. So it's it's a good, safe style to go with. Yeah. And especially, again, with my disappointment from New Belgium, they don't do a lot of stouts. They do, they That's really true. stay away from the dark beer unless it's some kind of barrel-aged sour. And it's yeah. not like it doesn't... like it, I mean, it snows there. Like They could make a good winter, you know... I think the, beer. the closest they come is um, in the winter. We get the uh, what is it like black lager? They're like nine. It's like sixteen ninety oh. whatever. Sixteen ninety four oh, yeah. or something like that. That one's good too. It's good, it but uh, come on, give us some more, more yeah, dark do beers. Else. Well, that no, I guess they do L's too. They do a lot of L's. It's yeah. Very they, yeah. <laughs> Because I was going to say, well, it's kind of hard to find anything that's not a lager to go, or anything a lager to go, but they do both. Like, most of these larger breweries, mm-hmm. they, they do exclusively a, a lagers. But, but you're not seeing, like, yeah, porters or yeah. any, yeah. It's Let's not discuss, um, what was it, the hazy IPA they did with Hefeweizen mm-hmm. yeast. Well, yeah, that's not. That a weird one. <sighs> All right, moving on. Um, so, Oklahoma's Coop Aleworks, which looks like an acronym. Uh, I always want to say, the, what is it, Wincoop? Yeah. Oh. I see the coop, and I'm like, oh, they left win off. Oh, no, no, different place. <laughs> uh, wins RFP to transform Guard Armory into headquarters. No, could it be co-op? 
I was thinking it's that too. Mashed together, there should be a hyphen. hyphen. Yeah. yeah. If it was co-op, it'd be a hyphen. And it, it's all caps. I don't know. Whatever. Um, it's cats, so you have to put the exclamation even in there and yell it. Coop. Coop. Uh, yeah, it's even done here. Anyway, uh, Oklahoma City-based. We're gonna say Coop for now. Coop Ale Works today announced a twenty dollar, twenty million dollar project to uh, revitalize the Twenty Third Street National Guard Armory and transform the vacated 87,000 square foot space into a manufacturing uh, manufacturing brewery, restaurant, event space, and boutique hotel. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so they've got some space to work with. Um, following a nine-month request, uh, request for proposal process, of course, uh, the state's Office of Management and Enterprise Services awarded Coop the 83-year-old Art Deco building, uh, which was once headquarters for the 45th no. Division Infantry you're what? not allowed to ooh the Art Deco thing. Aren't you, you know, in Cincinnati, you've got Cincinnati's the, Art Deco capital. You got the, yeah. what's the... Uh, Union Station, no, like the museum center. I'm, I'm thinking of the uh, Super Friends. Yeah, that's, that's that it. Is, that's oh, that's yeah, the... That's Union the, Terminal. Oh, okay. The museum it center, in. it's the greatest representation of Art Deco architecture remaining in the world. I'm just saying it's not all great. And, <laughs> and it's the Halls of Justice. We're just going to yeah, yeah, leave it there. It is. Anyway, uh, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, so it was, the, it was the 45th Division Infantry uh, headquarters in, uh, but it was shuttered in 2010. The purchase price of the building is six hundred thousand dollars. So, um, how many square feet inside? Eighty-seven thousand. That's pretty good per per square foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can put a lot in there. Yeah, they're they're doing well. Um, <laughs> so uh, the director of sales and marketing spoke to, of course, this is another Brewbound article. Uh, saying that um, the company will finance um, the project through a combination of cash, historical preservation tax credits, and bank debt. (laughs) (laughs) That all sounds about right. Uh, He added that attorneys will now work to finalize the purchase agreement, which should be completed no later than September 1st. Um, According to him, uh, the same person, revitalizing the armory gives the company an opportunity to cement its position in the Oklahoma market uh, and create an iconic presence. Uh, and it is between the Capital City um, and the State Capitol Building and uh, the Uptown District. So I don't really know much about Oklahoma City, but that seems like a very good head place to be. I do of, know it's where the funk. wind comes sweeping down the plains. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of funk in that Uptown District. Ah. Uh, nice. Um, uh, he's, uh, the spokesperson also said, our goal is not to be New Belgium of the rest of the, to the rest of the world. Our goal is to be a coupe. Oklahoma. Our goal is to be <laughs> stone. <laughs> uh, so starting in September, Coop will begin shutting down or begin gutting the interior of the building as it begins to transform the space into a 60-barrel production facility. And arming their new militia. <laughs> with a full-service restaurant and a 22-suite hotel. Um, they've been, uh, they're, I, they're looking at a September 2020 for the grand opening. Mm. That's not that far off, kids. <laughs> it's two years. That's coming quick. Yeah, yeah a little over two years. Excuse me. Especially if you're doing a hotel out of that as well. That's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, you got to have like a Disney budget of just construction people. What is it with everyone with the hotels now? It's a thing. <laughs> we'll get to that. Uh, so they're on track to produce about 18,000 barrels of beer in 2018. And the company expects to butt up against its 40,000 barrel capacity within the next two years. Uh, they said they knew they were going to grow out of the space that they're in. Um, fair. Uh, so they're going to have to be, have a new space by 2020 or 2021. So this seemed like a good opportunity. <laughs> At that price per square foot. Yeah, it seems like they got a good deal on yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so good job. Um, 
So uh, by the time the new facility is fully operational, the company projects it will have added about 90 workers to an existing team of 26 full-time and and part-time workers. So uh, in the meantime, they will maintain their current production facility, uh, which is about 20 minutes southwest of the armory site. And uh, it plans to sell its existing equipment, including a 30-barrel brew house, once it moves to the new facility. Which makes sense. Um, Yeah. Then it says, uh, they said that Coop is betting on itself uh, due to changes in Oklahoma's laws that will take effect in October and allow grocery and convenience stores to begin (sighs) selling full-strength beer. He added that Coop's beer is currently sold in about 700 liquor stores, but the company will gain access to about 4,400 additional retailers beginning in October because of that law change. Watching the, you know, this could go one way or the other. It said they were going to put in using debt financing. Mm-hmm. And so they're planning on this happening. You you plan for that to happen. Something yeah. it doesn't work out the way you want. It could it could backfire. But I think it's a good plan. Yeah. Uh, it says they're, um, they have a flagship IPA and now accounts for about 60% of its sales. Um, he said that uh, including a restaurant, hotel, and event space in the project should shield the company if the state's craft beer market begins to flatten out. Mm. That's a very good point. you got to have those backups because mm. people always need a hotel. Um, <laughs> well, having a destination brewery really helps. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you do hear the sounds of... Canning line running at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hotel with very good insulation. <laughs> you have to figure that part out. Um, so yeah, it kind of just goes on to say some of the other stuff that they're working on. Um, they now that does talk about their reach a little bit. Um, they currently ship beer to Missouri, Kansas, Nebraska, Arkansas, and Texas. So a good uh, area there. And they're also going to consider expanding distribution to Louisiana, Tennessee, Mississippi, New Mexico, and Arizona once the new brewery is there. So once they get that space to be able to do what they need to do, they're going to be able to at least get out there a bit more. So all in all, it sounds like a pretty good strategy. So good for them. Yeah. Um, they're moving into that regional status. That's yeah. the hard one to be in. Yeah. Ooh. Like once you get past the local, like if you can get past the local, then good job. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's where it goes. Then that's when things get hard. Yeah. Existing as a local brewery can be difficult, as we've seen. A lot, uh, a lot of guys can't exist in that space even and close up. But so hotels, this is the new big trend we are seeing. Uh, Brewdog has their hotel opening like next month, month after. Mm-hmm. Dogfish and already has theirs. Dogfish has had the inn for years, but that's extremely small scale. Yep. The Dogfish Still. Inn, I think, it can 10 guests, like I think. a bed and breakfast. Yeah, it's a tiny bed and breakfast. Could, you know they could legitimately build like a big oh, one yeah. they want to, mm-hmm. though. Yeah. and um, their, their main problem is that they're in Delaware. No, nobody wants to. Yeah, no. <laughs> they're, <laughs> no, but, they're the reason you go to Delaware. <laughs> yeah. It's like a uvula you've gotta, <laughs> of, of the U.S. you got to be going there to, to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and who else is it? Stone is getting ready to oh, open yeah, yeah. theirs. And... Um, who was it? Someone else was like Harpoon or someone like the uh, Boulevard or mm. someone mm. like that had a big one that they yeah. they're shutting down their one of their secondary locations to turn it into a hotel. So they're dealing with that. So we're going to see a ton. Like I don't know if it's everyone suddenly thinks, oh yeah, because of uh, the securing a room online at someone's apartment has become a thing. That's true, like Airbnb, yeah. Yeah, Airbnb has changed things, so everyone's like, oh, we can jump on that. I've it's seen too many exposés about hitting cameras in Airbnbs. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, I mean, is your brewery putting a hidden camera in your hotel room? Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but taps, uh, I'll take taps in my hotel room. You wait, right. you don't want to see the guys that are staying in a brewery <laughs> well, hotel. Room. No. Yeah. Yeah. no, but I want taps in my hotel room at a brewery. Absolutely, like you're like hot, cold IPA. <laughs> like, that's a sink. <laughs> Bathtub. You feel like all the beer that they're getting ready to throw out because it's getting ready to Oh, day, yeah. But you the just spa, make baths out that's of what, it. That's what your hotel spa is. You take all the beer you're getting ready to dump and you dump it into one of the beer spas. Well, we've talked a lot about beer. Let's move on to a little bit of whiskey. Mm. This news comes from actually Delaware Valley University. So it's coming from actually a school news website. Ah, I like we're just this. talking about Delaware. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. As craft whiskey producers look for ways to improve their products, many are looking to the past and bringing back varieties of grain that have been largely lost from the country's fields. Dad's Hat, a <laughs> Bristol, Pennsylvania-based craft whiskey producer, I've not had their stuff, but I kind of want it now. I have heard <laughs> of it. Um, is working with Delaware Valley University to bring back Rosen Rye, a, a variety that was widely grown in the U.S. about 100 years ago. Do you call that an heirloom variety, I guess, at that point? Yeah, hundred years is fair. Yeah, I would yeah. say at a hundred years. Um, I know a lot on the uh, the brewery side. It, not talking about rice, but talking about barley's. Um, Maris Otter was one that kind of got pulled in in this uh, similar way. Um, what's a pearl? Maybe one, and then there's another variety out there that is uh, quite quite old, but but kind of just golden promise. That's the other mm. one. And you can make all kinds of, of types of malt. It's just a matter of what the original product is. And that's what they're doing. They're bringing in the actual the variety of rye. So um, John Urbanchuk, the university's chair of agribusiness, or agribusiness, says, I don't think anyone else is growing this type of rye in Pennsylvania. The purpose of this project is to revive a heritage variety of rye. So there we go. That's a heritage variety. Um, Rose and rye started to disappear from Pennsylvania's fields partly because of prohibition. Of course, nobody's sure. using yeah. a, a rye variety usually to make bread. Uh, <laughs> rye whiskey was once a primarily distilled spirit in the U.S., said Urban Chunk. When prohibition came, that pretty much shut down the industry. Urban Chunk, I like saying that name now. That's a great Urban name. Chuck said that by the time Prohibition ended, rye whiskey had fallen out of favor with many Pennsylvania customers. Um, recently, rye whiskey has made a comeback as a popular drink, most of it being brought down from our neighbors to the north. Yeah. Dad's Hat founder and distiller Har Herman C. Oh, my Halik. Mielik. 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 That is the maneuver you give when someone is choking on a pretzel. <laughs> Approached Urban Chuck about growing Rosen Rye on campus after or he, Urban Chuck, that is, toured his distillery. I'm very excited to try some of this Rosen Rye in a small batch to, small batch of the distillery, said Mihalik. Uh, the best Pennsylvania rye whiskeys of the past were made with Rosen Rye, and we are doing our best to make the best rye whiskeys available today. In 2015, Urban Chuck obtained less than a handful of seeds from the USDAC repository for the project. By planting and harvesting this tiny amount of seed in greenhouses and high tunnels on campus, the university was able to get enough seeds to plant a batch this sprout that sprouted for up for this year. From the start, with that tiny amount of seeds, the project has been providing a learning experience for Delaware Valley students. Del Delval. <laughs> Something tells me with that amount, like it's it's gonna 
sometimes that'll blow up uh, when you're advertising it as heritage yeah. and mm-hmm. all these like a lot of the craft distillers which is booming as well they're going to want to get a hold of something that they can advertise with and you can definitely advertise with that like oh like not hasn't been you know distilled with in a hundred years and all these kinds of things you're big not not just i mean we're talking about making a beer before we distill it at that point so you can take this back to the beer side as well even though we've done that for every other story that we have pretty much <laughs> um but on the on that side these major beer producers abm bev they're they're coors they're looking at giving um their seeds and their product to farmers and they farm their own style and their variety of that crop. That way, everything is is equal across the board. Most craft brewers out there have a choice between maybe 10 at the most different varieties of barley, hmm. uh, different varieties of rye. I mean, you can roast it. You can do all these different things to it. But whenever you're talking about the exact variety, your variety you're seeing the exact same types of grain out of every single craft brewer out there. Very few have access to something different. You have yep. uh, Rogue with the Rogue Farms. Yep. They are, that is one thing I'm really excited about the Rogue episode we're going to have coming up because at Rogue Farms, they are growing everything they use themselves now. Absolutely. They're coopering all their own barrels. Like it is really exciting what is happening over there. And we want to see more of that. We have that in Cincinnati uh, locally happening with uh, Fig Leaf. Is it Fig Leaf or is it Fibonacci? One of them is opening their own farm Mm. through and through, and they're going to start growing all their own malts. They're going to start growing all their own hops. They have legitimately, like, we've heard reports, like, they're bringing in goats and everything. It's a fully functioning farm that they're getting going. Are they going to make a goat, sir? I want Oh, yeah. (laughs) Goat milk, goat, sir. Or beer cheese from the goat milk. Oh, my, yeah. Oh, um, I'm okay there. Yeah, but I, I think that's that's definitely a more craftsman way of of making beer, and it's definitely moving into that that style. I think. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah that that, that does news. it. So uh, a very productive, I feel like, news episode. <laughs> um, so I would like to remind everyone that this is, of course, our news only show. But we do a weekly long form show, generally right after this one, uh, discussing the science and history around what you drink. If you like what you hear and you want to support Have a Drink, please go to patreon.com slash haveadrinkshow. So we will see you at the normal time uh, next Saturday at 7.30 p.m. uh, Eastern Time. And once again, I'm Brittany Walker. I am Christopher Walker. And I'm Casey Price. We'll see you next time. Bye, guys. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>